and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home I ran up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall, no quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I just want to let you know how you can help us out at the podcast. First, we appreciate you all being here. Thanks for listening. Continue to listen. Uh, Our numbers are growing, and it is a testament to you, the listener. So thank you for listening to the show. Uh, The second way is by sharing these conversations on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever it is that you're social, please continue to share. It really does help us expand our reach. And the third way is by going over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you can subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month, as much as $10 a month. Uh, And it really does help us out as we continue to try to build this thing out. Uh, But now to today's guest. So Neen James is somebody I got introduced to from a former podcast guest, and she is a bundle of energy. And you're going to find that out real quick. Uh, She uh, shines a light on everyone that she interacts with, and she just brings this positivity or this energy that you just feel uh, across the microphone. She is the author of Folding Time and Attention Pays. I actually read Attention Pays. It's a really good book. I recommend you check, in th- check that out. Uh, in 2017, she was named one of the top 30 leadership speakers by Global Guru because of her work with companies like Viacom, Comcast, and Abbott Pharmaceuticals, among other companies. Nina's has boundless energy, as I said earlier. She's quick-witted. She always offers powerful strategies. She's very tangible uh, and very much. Tr- she very much tries to give you ways in which you can take what she's talking about and insert it into your life and make it tangible. Nina is the kind of speaker that engages, she educates, she entertains. So you're going to love how she delivers these real world solutions that apply to you. Uh, if you work in the corporate world, it could apply to your organization. If you're uh, a homebody and you're someone whose life is about making your home as great as possible. Neen will talk about that as well. And she also provides one-on-one consulting in a variety of leadership topics, and she loves serving people. So Neen is a giver. You're going to find that out real quick, uh, and you're going to love her sharing her heart, her authenticity, her vulnerability, and how clear she is on her philosophy and her mission in life. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Neen James. Neen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, We spoke... Gosh, I think it was like a little over a month ago. And 
you just have this vibrancy, this energy about you that is authentic and real. So I'm excited to see where this next hour takes us. And I just want to give Alan Stein a shout out for connecting the two of us. Uh, Alan is in the sports community in Washington, D.C. And so our paths have crossed multiple times and, and we chat a lot and he's been on the podcast. And so thanks to Alan for connecting us. And I'm just excited to see where this goes. So uh, right before we turn on the microphone, Ian said, I'm a one take girl. So um, we are going to give this one take and, and see where this turns. And where I'd love to start, Neen, is you have this passion for attention and your book is called Attention Pays. And I'm just curious, was there a moment where that started to uh, come to the forefront for you or was that a culmination of experiences? Why did attention become something that you wanted to get to a deep dive into? Well, what an absolute treat to get to serve your listeners and huge love to the fabulous Alan who did connect us. You know, my body of work, Brian, was always in the area of productivity. And what I realized was you can't manage time, but you can manage your attention. And that, that I guess that light bulb moment was, well, everything is fascinating to me. I'm like this person who is totally in awe of the world. So it's so important to me that I be in like awe and wonder and pay attention every day that I had it tattooed on the inside of my wrist. So what your listeners can't see is I have a tattoo that says be amazing. And I spell amazing A-H dash amazing because I want to be able to go, oh, that's amazing. And so I have this heightened uh, sense, I guess, of focus, and I'm always observing, I'm always curious. And what I realized was that when we started to pay attention more, whether it is paying attention to the people that we share our lives with, maybe it's paying attention to our customers, maybe it's paying attention to our own performance, what I realized was that time's going to happen whether we like it or not, right? We get 1,440 minutes each. It doesn't matter, Brian, whether you're a super rock star sports person, a CEO of a company, or whether you are managing your home or whether you are a school teacher. It really doesn't matter because time doesn't really care, right? Time's the great equalizer. But our attention, that's a choice. And so I kind of became obsessed with how do we get the world to pay attention, whether it's personally, professionally, or maybe even globally. And that's the basis of the book, Attention Pays. I don't know that there was a light bulb moment. I'm not that clever. I think it was really the combination of my work in the area of productivity. And I must give a shout out to a wonderful speaker friend by the name of Mark Sanborn. I was sitting in Mark Sanborn's office and I was so frustrated with like my body of work. I was like, I feel like I'm on the precipice of something really exciting, but it's just not getting the traction that I want and I and he was like mean what are you really about what do you really want and I was so frustrated Brian I was like I just want the world to pay attention and he said I know because that's who you are that's what you do that's what you're all about and I was like oh man and you know sometimes like things are so close to you that you don't see it or you're so good at something it's so intuitive to you that you just assume the world knows how to do it. And he said, look, you are so good at paying attention to other people. It's something that you're known for. Why don't you teach the world how to do that? And I was like, oh, man. And that's how we came up with this, the clever play on words of attention pays instead of pay attention. And that's the story of the book. Okay, so I have so much to unpack there. And uh, the first thought I had was, 
productivity. What were you doing in productivity? You said you were really focused on productivity and you realized that there was a link between attention to productivity. So take me back a little bit and what was your relationship with productivity and, and what were you doing specifically? The way that that kind of came about was I was a corporate girl. I grew up in corporate business in Australia. I ran very large companies. I worked in retail banking, telecommunications and the oil industry. And there's not a lot of chicks in oil in Australia. And I had this reputation as being the girl who could get things done. Like leaders would give me projects that were months behind, that needed new headcount, that needed fundraising. I mean, I had this go-to reputation, like give it to me and you know it'll get done. And so I had developed this reputation of being able to get things done. And then when I decided to move out on my own and leave corporate world, I set up my own company. And so many of the people said, hey, can you teach my people how you do that thing? And I was like, what thing? And they're like, well, how do you get stuff done? I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so easy. And it was so fundamental to me. But I realized I developed all these systems in my life. Now, now I call them systems of attention. Back then, I wasn't that clever. And so I started to speak about it, train about it. I got asked to speak at a lot of best practice conferences. My very first book was called The Secrets of Super Productivity. And over 15 years ago, I said, you can't manage time. It's always been the basis of my work. I'm not a time management expert because you can't manage time. Like that's stupid. Time is going to happen anyway. But I realized if you could do more in the time you had, that was the evolution of one of my other books called Folding Time, How Do You Achieve Twice As Much in Half the Amount of Time? Because think about it, Brian, if you have like two weeks to make a decision, how long does it take you? Minutes. Yeah. Well, not most people because most people take two <laughs> weeks. If you give someone two minutes to make a decision, they make the decision in two minutes. So think wait, wait, wait. So, so you're saying if, if we have two weeks to make a decision, we'll take all of the two weeks? Often, uh, yeah. That. That's that's the And that's what I noticed about human behavior. And so I thought, well, goodness, let's just shorten it. So what if you ask people to do like twice as much in half the amount of time, can they get it done? And so I found that was, that's what was very successful. And so I think for me, when I was living in this world of productivity, I also realized productivity is not a very sexy topic. Let's be super clear about that. And so while I didn't fit the typical time management girl, I didn't have laminated checklists. I wasn't telling people like how they could manage time because I didn't believe it. And so what I was able to do is give people very practical things they could do. And that's what I became known for in the keynoting side of my business. I was constantly being asked by corporations, by leaders to teach their team how to get more done. So project management was something that was almost intuitive to me. I could run a project, have a budget, map out the milestones, and I could exceed it every time. And so having this reputation and then I guess I reverse engineered it, Brian. I was like, well, how do I do that? When people would say, well, how'd you get that done? I was like, I don't know. You just do A, B, and C. And they were like, oh, I never thought about that. Well, there's actually a business in that. That's what's amazing. So I'm just curious. It sounds like you were a high achiever, uh, maybe a maximizer, somebody who wanted to fulfill their potential. Where did that come from for you? Like if it's upbringing or is it DNA? Like where, where, did, where did that come from for you? I think it's a combination. I remember very specifically when I was a little girl, uh, I had a single mom and a little sister, which was very unusual back then. So when I was young, I grew up in this tiny little town. They had like one uh, stoplight. And uh, I remember my mom worked really, really hard to raise us. And I remember thinking to myself very specifically, very young, like, I want to create this life for myself where I can do whatever I want, have whatever I want, be whatever I want. Very, very young. I was incredibly uh, driven because I wanted to create a lifestyle where money was just a thing. Right. So 
the more money you make, I always believe the more money you can give away. And so I'd made this decision very young. So I think that was definitely one of my drivers. I also had a fantastic role model in my mom who was always very, very social. And she always made sure everything felt really special, that she made people feel really special. And she still does to this day. So I think that combination, uh, that was very much a big influence from me. And then what I realized was when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I mean, I thought I wanted to be lots of things when I was in high school, like so many people. But when I didn't get the score I wanted, Brian, uh, I was devastated. So in Australia, they have the equivalent of like SATs, I guess. And I was 20 points short of what I really needed. And I thought like my whole world was going to fall apart. And so I thought I wanted to be a journalist because people fascinate me and I thought it'd be fun to be in communications. And so I ended up going into banking. And uh, what I did was I thought, well, I'll defer all the courses I did get accepted in for college. I'll take one year. And in that one year, I'll make some money and then I'll go to school. So you have the ability to do that in Australia. You can defer all the courses you're accepted into. And I put them on hold. And uh, my dad wanted me to be a teacher. And I was like, eh, I don't want to do that. Like, anyway, so I applied for all the teaching programs, you know, to make my dad happy. And then in the first year of banking, I had some big realizations. I thought, I would watch these people who get promoted. And I'd be like, huh, they know how to get things done. There's something to that. So within my first year, I was promoted very, very quickly. And after a year of making income when you've been a high school kid, I was like, hey, forget this whole college thing. I'm just going to like make money, right? And so I set my targets on making sure that I would become a supervisor by the time I was 21. I wanted to be a bank manager by the time I was 25. Like I was mapping out my whole life. Now, understand, I was like 19 when I became a supervisor. I was 21 when I managed my first branch. I was the youngest bank manager and 33,000 employees. So you, when you look back on my career, you can see this drive. It's a very internal thing, but also I was very strategic and I was very blessed. I would look ahead and go, oh, that Brian, he's a great manager. He's a great leader. And I would interview him and I would make sure that I understood everything that he did to get where he was. And so I was always curious, always looking. So that's probably why I am who I am today because of the combination of my decisions as a youngster, my mum being a great role model, and setting these goals and constantly looking to achieve them. So you said I was raised by a single mom, mm-hmm. um, but then you also mentioned having a relationship with dad. Um, yeah. What was, what was that dynamic growing up like for you? So as a young, so there was me and my sister with my mom, and uh, my mom fell in love with my Sunday school teacher, and so they got married when I was a teenager, and so we became like that Brady Bunch family because like there was the two girls to my mom, he had a daughter as well, and then my mom and my stepdad had my brother and my sister. So with this kind of back then, that was like a weird thing. Now it's so common, right? But what was interesting growing up like that was as a young girl, my sister and I were the only people that didn't have uh, the dad in the school. So that was kind of weird, right? So, you know, in America, we have like the daddy-daughter dance and things like that. We didn't have that opportunity. But what's really cool about my, my stepdad, who I call my dad, uh, he is like a crazy academic. So super crazy smarty pants person, very, very academic. And so it was really neat to grow up in a household where my mom was like the social butterfly and so great at getting things done. And my dad was very much the smarty pants. So he would stretch us and 
and uh, I'm the oldest of five kids, right? So the oldest of five makes me like crazy responsible, even though I know I sound like I'm five. Um, I was the person who was kind of always helping get my little sister organized. And then when my mom had my brother and my baby sister, uh, it was great because it's like these like Barbie dolls, but they're like real. So I was very involved, especially my little brother and raising my brother and then my little sister came along. So I'm very, very fortunate to have this crazy great childhood. Like I think we had a really great childhood. We actually didn't realize that we didn't have any money. Like my sister and I, like my mom would make furniture out of like um, those beautiful like shipping containers. She would put like a tablecloth on it and pretend it was a table. Like we had no idea that we actually didn't have the money uh, until we would start to notice like all of our friends and stuff and we're like oh okay and so mum was very cool in trying to be very creative and I think too I always realized that when when I started to realize oh money's a thing the more money I make the more I can give away and I grew up under the um, I was very fortunate to grow up with the concept of things like tithing and always making sure you give away and being generous regardless of how much you have always making sure you give to others and so that's a philosophy I've kept in my own practice. So for me, for example, financially, every year I set a tithing goal. So if people don't know what tithing is, it's just the premise, it's a biblical thing of giving away at least 10% of what you're making, whether it is to a church, a community, or something you believe in. So now the way I do it, Brian, is I set a tithing goal for the year, and then I have to make at least that, obviously. So if, say, for example, I set a tithing goal of $50,000, I have to make at least $500,000. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, very cool. Uh, religion uh, played a, a role. It's how you, you dropped two things. You dropped tithing and you dropped uh, Sunday school. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about that. How did that shape your worldview? You know, I think I was I was really fortunate because when mum was on her own, one thing that was really stable was we had Sunday school. And whether people have religion views or not, I mean, you, you may have, like you might have got together whatever religion people have, or if you don't have religion, that's totally cool too. What I think I loved about Sunday school was that there was this routine in our life on a Sunday where we were, uh, we get dressed up for Sunday school. Like back then you would get, I hated church, by the way, hated having to sit still in church, hated it, but loved Sunday school. So as a little kid, you would like color and you would make things. And so that was kind of cool to me. And then obviously my Sunday school teacher became my dad. So there's something lovely about that. And kind of weird too as a teenager because like we would have to go to like church and our friends would be, they didn't have to, so we would resent it as a teenager. Um, but what was neat about it too was that I was always part of a social structure. So in churches they have Sunday school when you're little, they have youth group when you're a teenager. So youth groups then go to camps and they go to concerts and I always had this social life. Uh, and that was pretty cool for me. And while I don't belong to a church, I don't go to church, I, uh, right now, I have been so fortunate to have a faith that has worked for me. Doesn't mean it works for everybody, but I do believe that we are put on this planet to do so much more than we are even thinking we're capable of. And I do believe in a higher power. And so for me, that also helps me to have that direction, that grounding, that I am put here to truly make the most of every moment that I'm gifted to have on the planet. And you have this gratitude, you used the word blessed earlier, uh, about you. But biological dad, did you ever know him? Did you know who he was? Uh, Was that something that you were curious about? Oh my gosh. I so, well, when I was little, I don't think I thought as much about it because my dad left when my, when I was three and my mom was pregnant with my dad, with my baby sister. 
Oh, she's not my baby sister now, but my sister at the time. And so I kind of resented the fact that someone would leave a human when they had another little human inside them. Like, it didn't even make any sense to me. Like, who does that? What kind of human would leave someone? And so I think I realized or I made the connection or I made the assumption or I had this belief system, Brian, that as a little kid, well, men don't matter. You can just do anything yourself. You know, like, be fiercely independent. But I was so fortunate. I had this aunt and uncle, Annie Carol and Uncle Trevor, who are literally my substitute parents, right? So he took on that male role model for me. And she was the cool auntie. She still is. Like, made me laugh. She was funny. She had a wicked sense of humor. Her and my mom were, like, famously together all the time. So I didn't lack for male role models. I was very, very fortunate about that. When my stepdad came along, I realized what an amazing relationship my mom and he had because he would then take care of her. That's all I wanted him to do, just take care of her. Um, What was interesting to me was one day when I fell in love with my husband, who I've been married for like 29 years. So I had literally married the love of my life. He still is the love of my life. But my Andy, I remember him turning to me one day when we'd been married I want to say we'd be married a couple of years. It was a Sunday and he turned to me and he said, I just need you to know I'm not going to leave like your dad did. And that was fascinating to me that, number one, he's like that in tune and crazy smart because he, he is. He is amazing. But that he would even think to say something like that to me. So to answer your question about my inquisitiveness about my dad, the reason I tell you all this is my auntie Carol, I remember as a teenager, I said to her, I want to find my dad. And she was like, well, I'll help you but you may not like what you find. And that was enough for me to go, oh, okay, then I won't worry about it. But my other sister, she did. She wanted to know him. She found him. She connected with him. They uh, attempted to develop a relationship. What was kind of freaky was uh, my baby, my sister, Deb, she gave him my, or he must have got my contact details. He rang me out of the blue one day. I was home from work, like super, super sick. And he'd rung the bank where I worked and said, hey, you know, this is Neen's dad. I just need to get in contact with her. And the bank told him my phone number at home. He called at home. I was freaked out. I mean, crazy freaked out. He's this person I've not heard from ever. And then he calls and says, I'm coming to your house. Well, I, I like went into a crazy town meltdown. Now this is before cell phones, by the way. So, I mean, this is how long ago it is. People listening to this podcast don't probably even remember life before cell phones. But I called my honey and I was like, um, so this guy just called, he claims he's my dad, he's coming over. So my husband was very sweet and like picked me up as this bundling crying mess of crazy town. And, uh, And that then started a new journey where I had to explain and and say to him, you're actually biologically sure you might be able to lay claim to me as your child, but my stepdad is really my dad. And so um, I think I have a phenomenal relationship with men. I don't have any issues with that. I wish him well. Um, But my stepdad really took on that role. My uncle Trevor very much had a male role model. Like and still does to this day, even though I'm like a little old lady, these are people that I absolutely value. And it's interesting how it shapes you or doesn't, whether it makes you help it hurt, you know, this nurture nature thing. You know, for me, I feel like it turned out pretty okay. Yeah, I love the idea of nurturing your nature. And, you know, there, there's an element of you that is 
uh, biological, but then what are you going to nurture? Like, what are you going to use the water to have grow? And then what are you not going to necessarily grow? And in hearing you talk, there's this drive, there's this tenacity, fierceness about you. Um, and so with athletes, we often talk about the chip on the shoulder. And like for athletes, having a chip on your shoulder is a good thing. It means like you're not going to stop. You're going to keep going. You're going to be gritty, whatever it might be. But I've had this conversation with baseball players a lot because baseball players, I talk about if you only lead with your chip on your shoulder, you're not going to collaborate. You're not going to learn how to relax. You're not going to learn how to just be. You're going to maximize. You're going to keep running through the wall. But there's a time to lead with the chip. And then there's a time to lean in with the other shoulder uh, mm -hmm. and maybe be compassionate or maybe uh, be encouraging. And, and it doesn't always have to be a, a fight. And so um, I, I find that to be a fascinating polarity because uh, the chip on the shoulder can often get you to where you want to go. But sometimes what you need to break through, uh, going back to your idea of sort of how are you managing your attention and where are you managing your attention, it's going to determine it. So if it's just instinct and it's just that, that drive and that tenacity and that fierceness, maybe in that moment you need to take a breath. And baseball players, you know, they literally grip a bat. And the more tense they grip that bat, the harder it becomes to swing it. And so there are times where they actually need to take a, a breath and actually calm into it uh, and just be present with, with their moment. And that can allow them to unlock their ability to swing the bat. Um, so I'm someone who I think I've always had a chip on my shoulder. And over the years, I've done a lot of work to try to manage that chip because what got me to a certain point what I need to get to the next level sometimes will be listening or taking a step back. Um, so it, it was, it was really interesting as you sort of unpacked how you came to be you. Uh, it was, it was fascinating. If you have anything to add on to that, feel free, but I also want to find out how you transitioned um, out of this corporate world where it sounds like you're rising, you're rising, you're rising, you know, you're, you're, reaching your goals and like what occurs you're, you're doing, you're working in all of these high financial institutions, whether it's banking or oil, you know, it seems like there's a career path that for a lot of people that might be driven to make money, whether, and by the way, I think being driven to make money is not a bad thing. Uh, and I think there's this notion that, oh, if you want to make money, then you're materialistic. But you gave a perfect example of, oh, I wanted to make money so I could give it away. And I knew that if I did really well, I could do a lot of good. And that is a powerful, powerful concept that um, I think sometimes gets lost in the desire to make money uh, conversation. And uh, anyway, so so I could, if you have any thoughts on that, feel free. But I'm I'm also curious how you end up transitioning out of corporate and into this other this other life. Yeah, and I think I can answer that in two ways. I think money just gives you choices, right? The more money you have, the more choices you have. It's just it's literally that simple, right? So in my world, it literally that's how it is. If you if you don't have a lot of money, you're going to make different choices, right? And if you have a lot of money, you're going to have different choices available to you. It's just choices. That's all I see. That it's just an energetic thing, right? And I'm not trying to make it all woo-woo. I just, I think that's what it is, right? And so when I know in my own business, so I, have, I run a speaking practice, predominantly keynoting. And so when times are really great, yay, everybody gets bonuses. We buy all the things we want. And then when I don't have as many bookings as I want, I'm like, oh man, need to like, may have to drive myself to the airport instead of using a driver, right? So you just make different choices. And so I think with me, with money, what I've also 
also found it to be is a little bit of a measurement. So whether as a keynote speaker, I've aspired to certain keynoting fees. It's another goal way. It's another orientation. In my corporate life, I knew that this sounds so insignificant now, but I knew I wanted to make $100,000 by the time I was 30. And so I was just setting financial targets associated to positions. You asked about the transition. In my corporate career, I had this uh, system and it was like this. I would say, okay, it's going to take me three months to learn the job, three months to master it, right? So so three months to learn it, six months to master it, nine months to find and train my successor, and within 12 months I'd be promoted. So three months to learn it, six months to master it, nine months to find and train my successor, and within 12 months I'd be promoted. If you were to track my banking career, I was promoted every 10 months. And the reason was I was so focused on learning, teaching, moving on. So I'd learn it, I'd teach someone else, and then I'd move on. And when I track my career, whether it was uh, retail, banking, telecommunications even, I was always working on how can I get so good at this that I can then teach someone else. And when I teach someone else, right, and show them how to do it and create almost like their own little operations manual, then I want to move on. So I was always asking my boss, what can, what can I help you with? What can I learn from you? What Can I come to a meeting with you? Can, I, can you send me to this training course? I was always that girl. If there was a company training course, a university, our program, our conference, I would put my hand up. If there was a project, I would put my hand up. This drive is what I think also helped me form and helped it easier for me to transition because when I decided to leave corporate, I told the board in the January, hey, I'm going to re-engineer the business. We're in a time where we need to change everything. I helped engineer very significant redundancies. In Australia, that means we pay you to leave. Um, And so, you know, we centralized a call center, a sales team, a procurement area, all of that, and I was part of that. And what was exciting about that was I then had a choice to go out on my own. When I went out on my own, I started a training company with someone who worked with me already. I'd brought him with me in multiple companies and he was exceptional at delivery. So he would go and train and we were very fortunate to have a retainer client the moment we opened our doors. Having a retainer client was very strategic because I knew that he could be paid, we'd be able to keep the lights on and then we could grow the business. And so that was a very... Before you go forward, were you always someone who wanted to work for yourself? How, no, how did- not at all. I just, I had, you know, I didn't ever think of myself as an entrepreneur, and to some extent, I still don't. Uh, I just, I knew that when I wanted to work, I wanted to have different choices. You see, and see, choice is obviously a very key theme in my life. You'll hear me say that a lot. In corporate life, uh, in Australia, we are so fortunate. We have four weeks of vacation a year, and we take it like sometimes in a row, right? In America, if you take like four days off, you call it a vacation here. Not so much. I think it's like a long weekend. So my husband was uh, traveling back and forth to Asia significantly. Most weeks he was in and out of Asia. And the challenge with being a corporate employee is that I only had so much vacation time and only so much flexibility. And I thought, well, if I had my own company, I would have more flexibility. So part of the reason for me re-engineering and choosing to go out on my own was I knew I had talents that I could sell for sure. I also had brilliant role modeling. The speaking community in Australia is very strong. So I had great role modeling, but I also knew that my honey was um, very successful in a corporate career. So I had the flexibility to do that. It's because of my honey and his generosity that I was able to set up on my own. Not everyone has that choice. I had the stability of knowing we would be taken care of, but we weren't relying on my income source. And even to 
to this day, having had my own company for 15 years, he has still been wonderfully stable and generous. And so that allows me to experiment and do new things and print books and try and travel and do conferences. And I think for me, I'm very aware of that level of generosity. That's an amazing dichotomy that we see in the sports world is you have people that are very secure and safe who are able to get training and able to take risks and, and able to, you know, go forward. And then you have people that have nothing who are able to just, you know, create something from nothing and use their hunger and their passion and their drive. Like it's the people that don't have a plan B. And then you have the people who, yeah, I, I know I'm good. Like they have a safety net or security. And so I think security is such a fascinating concept because you have people that are very insecure and because of that insecurity, they're able to push forward and make everything happen. And then on the other end of the spectrum, people that have security are also able to push forward. And it's one of the areas that I'm really interested in because so many of my clients, when they lack security, they default to putting security above all else. And I think a lot of people in the corporate world will say, well, I don't have the security to leave this job to go pursue my passion and I have to put my family first. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you're clear as far as why I'm doing it. Um, But security is up. You have both of those examples uh, come through my door often is the person who there is plan B, like I'm making it and there is no other option. And then you have the other people that say like, well, yeah, like if I fail, so what? Um, so you have both of those and yeah, I think it's, you know, there is, there is absolutely no formula. There is no formula for an athlete. There is no formula for a CEO and there's certainly no formula for an entrepreneur and no set of circumstances that ever the same. I have been so blessed to have a partner who is supportive and generous and kind and allows me flexibility and allows me to experiment and allows me to do what I do in the same respect. If, uh, and I, there's the money as choice, right? So because there is regular stable income that gives me different choices, if something were to happen and our situation were to change and, you know, I needed to, uh, take on a contract or do something different to support us, you better believe that I would do whatever was required for us to create and manage a lifestyle that worked for both of us. So I don't, I I think that when people stay in corporate jobs rather than choose an entrepreneurial career, that's an awesome choice. And they're doing it because of sometimes security, sometimes confidence, but they, they contribute. I loved my corporate days. I love my corporate clients and I really do miss being part of a corporate team. But what I'm so fortunate to have, Brian, is some clients have me on a retainer basis where they, we call it brand my brain. So they, I am a resource for them on a regular basis and we have those arrangements so I can pop in and out of their team meetings and their projects and, and help their executives, which is really, really cool for me. So I get the best of both worlds. But I think too that we need to understand, do we have the confidence to do what we do? I'm very confident. I could confidently go out on my own. I can confidently get that next speaking engagement. I can hustle and get more business if I need need to where does your where where does your confidence come from i think it's a combination of things i think i am very driven as you've already understood but i'm also very clear i know what i'm good at and i know what i'm not good at and the things that i'm not good at i have people who help me do that and i have the luxury of being able to build a team around me that can do that my ideation, my idea productivity is through the roof. You sit me in front of a client, uh, a project team, I can come up with a 
thousand ideas in 30 minutes. I am really great at ideation. What I'm not as great at is execution. So I can give you these thousand ideas and say, go forth and do them. I can even help you map plans on how to make them happen. But what I don't enjoy is routine or maintenance. So that's why I was a great project person at the beginning to ideate the project and lead the project, but not maintain the project. Understanding that I have a great team in place, people who help me with social media and getting that out into the world, people who help me with like managing my calendar, managing logistics, managing client calls, even setting up a call like today I have my Maria she manages my whole world has done for 13 years so what I know about myself is I'm good at these things but not good at these things and so I get someone to help me with that but but you mentioned something earlier that caught my attention which was systems and that oh, you put you put into place systems and um you you really outlined it like three months six months nine months 12 months and <laughs> then and then you had a process to try to execute and so it's interesting to hear you say like I'm better at the idea idea but not as good at the execution yet you have and in your book like has tons of sort of how to hey oh, yeah. here's here's how to make this tangible and execute so do you think you've overloaded on those execution uh, items and and making it tangible because you're such an idea person I think I've had to create systems of attention so what I'm showing you but people can't see uh, on the podcast is Every time I work with a client, I have a checklist of everything that has to happen. Uh, every day I have a checklist of things I have to do, like take my vitamins, make sure I work out, ride my Peloton, make sure I meditate. Like literally my system of attention is a physical checklist, which sounds so crazy when people are listening to this. But knowing that I could ideate all day, but that's not going to help me get things done. So I have to be able to implement systems of attention to allow me to get things done. I have appointed and I pay people to help me get things done. And I'm fortunate to be in a position to do that, by the way. And I know that that's a privilege. And not everyone listening to this can do this. So maybe you don't have the money to pay someone. But what I, what I did when I was building my business, Brian, was I would barter. So I would barter someone's time for brilliance. So I would say, hey, I need you to help me set up my QuickBooks account. Let's say that. And I'd say, I'll tell you what, I'll come and teach your team how to be productive if you will help set up my QuickBooks account. I'd take what the skills I had and I would barter for someone's time. There was a cleaning company in the area. I wanted my house clean because I travel so, and, so much. And it sounds, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but I was like, okay, I would teach the team how to give even more attention to the clients when they're in their homes if you wouldn't mind just cleaning my house for a little bit. So what I tried to do when I had no money, because understand, I left Australia with no clients, no money, like no reputation, and I came to America. I had to build from scratch a complete business. And so the only way I could do that in the early days was barter my expertise for other people's time and brilliance. And that's how I started my company was doing those. I'd speak for free. I went and spoke at lunch and learns. I would barter wherever I could to build up my expertise, to build up services they needed. So even if you don't have the money to pay someone, maybe you could exchange some time even in your corporate job. You might say, I'll help you with your PowerPoint presentation if you'll help me with this spreadsheet. Know what you're really good at and then find creative ways to get other people to help you do things. So this is a different question. I don't think I've ever asked this question before. So if it doesn't come out in a smooth manner, just 
work with me on this. So I've always considered myself very, I'm, I think I'm very similar to you. I've always, I can come up with a million ideas. Like I'm an idea guy. My friends and family have to deal with it. You know, I'm coming up with a new restaurant concept, a new technology. Like I, I literally, I'll, I'll say this to the world and they can steal this idea. You know, I literally one day want to sell a book of Brian's ideas. And that's, that's an idea. Like Brian's mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah the Brian's idea book, like the first page is like, make a book of your ideas. Um, and so I get you complete, completely with ideation. And then I do struggle with a lot of those. For me, it's like attention to detail on the monotonous stuff uh, is where I often struggle. Mm-hmm. And I have to try to create systems and checklists to make up for that. Because if I don't, it's not where my passion lies. And if I'm not feeling it emotionally, it, I, it's hard for me to invest in it. But I digress from that and go into ideation. And I'm thinking about, okay, so for the two of us, I, I understand there's systems and, and how you can stay organized and how you can make sure that you're paying attention to those details. Let's, right. let's try to flip it and have a conversation for people. What do people do that are really good at those tasks but struggle with ideation? Um, and oh, like how do they get better at that? Yeah, how can you oh. improve – Yes. Becoming an idea. If, if you're really good at the task and you're really good at staying organized, but maybe you want to create an idea, you want to create ideas and you want to, you know, it, I, I use the word create, I'll use the word creativity, but increase that element of things. What, what should somebody do if, if they Oh, want I can to give you a thousand ideas about how to do that. Come okay. on with a thousand ideas for how to create <laughs> ideas. Go for it. Right. So I would start with just a blank sheet of paper. So zero-based thinking is this concept that there's no precedence, right? You start from zero. I would literally start with a blank sheet of paper and then throw, I love mind maps. So if you don't know what mind maps are and you're listening to this, uh, Chani Buzan wrote about it. I've never read his book in all honesty, but I want to give him credit for the name of it. But it's basically, I learned this in my project management days where you throw an idea in a circle and then you just write little branches, anything you can think about that makes that idea. Like this is the way that I take notes. So even in our conversation today, I've started a mind map. So here's my thought for you. If you want to get more creative, put uh, get a blank sheet of paper, put an idea in the center of the page and every thought you have about that, don't judge it, just throw it all on the piece of paper as different branches. Every new idea is a new line. And then that gives you the ability to not judge what you're thinking about, but just to come up with stuff. In the same way, if you're facilitating a brainstorming session with a team, you simply grab a piece of paper, a flip chart, a whiteboard, and just grab everything and encourage people, no boundaries, just anything that comes up. So stop judging your ideas and just make a list of them, right? That's one thing that I would suggest. If you want to be more strategic about your ideas, a really great question that I love is let's say you're ideating about, that like you said, restaurant, a new restaurant idea, right? You come up with an idea for a restaurant and then you think, well, what's that really about? And what's that about? And what's bigger than that? And what's that about? And what's bigger than that? And what's, what's that about? And so by constantly asking the question, what's that about? You get to a different level. You go deeper and deeper or higher and higher. Or you might think to yourself, well, what else? What else? What other restaurant ideas do I have? Or what other things are important? What else? What else? what else what else what else I love the question what else so when I'm with an executive in some of my big corporate clients and we're trying to ideate around maybe we're redesigning a whole department because I will go in and I have a very strategic brain and so I would say well you know what's that really about and what's that really about and what else what else do we need to think about what else what else what else and it gives you the ability to go up and down. Now, it's very easy for people who are task-oriented to go down and look for the very specific minutiae, the tasks. 
And I'm going to suggest to people that sometimes you go the other way and say, what's this about? What's a theme for this? What's a bigger concept? I love to live in context. And with my hands, what you can't see on the podcast is I'm going like high, high in the sky, right? So think about strategic being high level, tactical being low level. One's not better than the other. They're just different, right? But if you want to be more strategic, if you want to be able to create more ideas, if you want to be more creative, also get out of the environment that you're in. So for me, when I'm writing, for example, I can't write at my desk. I just can't. So I will go and sit in a different section of my house or I will go and sit outside to ideate about the particular blog or book that I'm writing and then I'll come back to physically do the writing. So shift location so that you can find something that inspires you. I'm also inspired by environments. So go for a walk get in nature, go to the beach, find somewhere that you find a more uh, creative. For example, when I was running, I would take an issue on a run with me. And so I'd start my run with an intention of, I need to work out how to be more creative with this client, or I need a more creative way to tell this story in my keynote. And I'd take it on my run with me. The act of movement also can generate that creativity. You have many athletes who listen to this, and so they can probably understand that. I also believe in like visualizing and saying, well, what would this really look like? And just closing your eyes and thinking about, here's what I want it to look like, or here's how I want to feel about it, and then reverse engineer it. So hopefully that gives people some ideas. So writing is something that you've done a lot of. Mm-hmm. What, have you, what have you learned through those processes over the years? What are you better at when you're writing today than when you first started? Let's be clear, I hate to write. So it's not something that I'm good at. It's something that I have developed a skill in because I needed to. So in my corporate days, I had to write emails. I had to write uh, project summary reports. I had to write compelling training programs. So I don't enjoy writing. Let's just put that on the table. However, what I've realized is I can give speeches all day, every day, and I am in my happy place on stage. People don't remember always what they hear. They want to take something with them. They want to take your process, your systems, in my case, systems of attention or my book. And so what I realized was that because people learn so differently, not everyone's audio, not everyone's visual. Some people are kinesthetic. Some people love to be able to read something. And so writing had to be a methodology I had to learn. So I created a system for myself that if I was going to write a blog, it had an opening statement, it had three main points and a call to action. That's it. That's how simple it is when I write a blog. If I shoot a video, it basically says, here's what I'm going to tell you about. Here's three things you can do. And by the way, I'd like you to take some action. So I just created a system of attention even for writing. When I wrote my book, I engaged a very strategic editor to say, hey, here's all my ideas. And my editor said, this is terrible. This is not like, this is not thought leadership. And I was like, it's devastated. But she's so good at what she did. She helped me to find the perfect case study, the perfect story, the perfect client example to support what I was trying to say. And so it was working with someone else that made attention pay so much more valuable. I also pay people to edit my work. I make sure that I pay people to make my videos look pretty, but I am a one-take girl. You said that in my introduction. When I turn the camera on, that's it. Like, I don't go back and edit myself. It's like, well, this is who I am in the world. You like it or you don't, and that's totally okay. Well, the amazing thing about what you just talked about is it goes back to what you're talking about with the what else. And I think about from an idea standpoint, like I come up with ideas all the time and most people's reaction is to tell me why it won't work. Yeah. Uh, and, and I always am like, all right, 
I don't need you to tell me why it won't work. I need you to tell me what else. All right, well, what else can you do? How else can you think about it? And it sounds like you surround yourself with what else people. They might say, all right, this is terrible. But then that editor is going to say, all right, what else are you looking to do? What else? How can we still draw out um, the ideas? They don't just say, oh, it's a bad idea. Go forward. And I think the scary thing about creating ideas or creating in general is you're putting yourself out there. And I think it's way easier for someone to say, oh, that's not going to work. I think the world is, we are, uh, there are people that say something isn't going to work everywhere I go. I'll come up with an idea. Someone will be like, no, here's why that's not going to work. I'm like, all right, I get why you're telling me why it's not going to work. Now I want you to tell me how can this work and, and what else can we do? I'm, yeah. And I am the girl who will, I'm the, I see the world through these, you know, beautiful rose colored glasses, Pollyanna view. I do. I have a very positive view of the world. And I'm always, if someone tells me I can't do something, that's an incredible uh, <laughs> motivator to prove them wrong. And so I will always be looking to work out how to do something and I'm also the person who will look to re reverse engineer something. So maybe someone's been very successful. I will ask them as many questions as I can to understand how did they get there. Maybe uh, there's something that someone does that I really admire. I will ask them about how did they get good at that? What do I need to read? What do I, I'm a, I'm a study I'm a, and I'm a quick study. So once I understand, hey, Brian's exceptional at this, I'll be like, okay, what can I take away from that? Not what can I copy, but what can I take away from that? How can I make it mine? And so I, I do love to reverse engineer things but I also like to make sure that I map things and I write things down I don't enjoy writing I've been very clear about that but if I can write down a process for something that I can then replicate or enhance once it's written down it makes it real and so for me the reason I use these checklists that I showed you is because it's real I have to do it I also have built accountability into my life Brian so I have an accountability partner every Monday I send her my goals for the week every Friday I send her a result of how I did now I don't particularly enjoy it some weeks, but I'm going to tell you there is no way I'm going to report on not having those things done, even if I'm up late Thursday night trying to get them done before Friday's email. And so I believe that public accountability drives private accountability. If you want to get good at something or if you want to learn something, tell someone that you're going to do it and then it makes you more accountable for it. Athletes know this, CEOs know it because they're accountable to their board, leaders know it because they have objectives. But sometimes if we are an entrepreneur or we don't have a people to be accountable to, we don't always get as much done that we want to do. So that's a system of attention I build into my life is accountability partners. I love that. It's it's so simple and it's so easy and we all are able to do that. I'm thinking about that for myself, so thank you. Um, you said something earlier that caught my attention, which is I love speaking. Um, like, yeah, and, and you lit up when you said it. You like, like, oh no, that's what I, I, the way I heard it, I don't think you said this, but the way I heard it is like, that's what I feel most alive. Like that is- oh, Hands it. down. My happy place is on a stage in front of an audience. I don't care if there's 10 people or 10,000 people. I am so, so happy. But what I've also learned is that that is one of my callings in life. I was the kid who would stand up in Sunday school and do a reading or in church. I was the kid at school who was like in charge of something. I was always, 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 always in the front. I was in the front of the room. I did not, I would never got nervous when I had to give like a school presentation. So I know I'm born to be on that stage. It is a part of my calling to make an impact in the world, to get the world to pay attention. What I've had to learn to do is the speaking part is easy. 
The hard part is the delayed flights, the driving all night to get to a client site, the getting up at 6 a.m. for a a sound check when you're on at 2 o'clock. You know, there's all of the side that people don't see. For one hour keynoting on stage, it looks amazing and easy. And I want it to look easy. And people are like, oh, I would love to do what you do and you make it look so easy. That's the point. It's supposed to look easy. But they don't know that I get up at 4 a.m. to rehearse. They don't know that I'm still at the airport at midnight trying to negotiate another flight or renting a car so I can drive through the night. People don't see that side of the speaking business, but my happy place is on that stage standing in service of an audience. Can you, can you go back to the 4 a.m. rehearsing? What does that look uh, like? That's, that's not fun. And that's new, by the way. That's like, don't, do not think that I do this, like have been doing this for months. This is a new thing for me. There's a brilliant speaker who I love and adore and admire, and his name is Drew Davis. And I was told that he rehearsed for three to four hours a day. And I was like, how is that a thing? Like, I already had mad respect for this guy, but how is he doing this? So I reached out to him and I was like, look, this is crazy town. Tell me about this. Now I know he's a morning bird, like, like he's very much early like me. And uh, he said, yeah, I do. I get up early. I, you know, he's, he's kind of gets up around three or four and, uh, and he rehearses. And I was like, Ugh, that's awful, but okay. If this is how this, if this is one of the ways to be successful, then I'm all in. I can't do three hours. I'm a girl who needs to beauty sleep. But I did say to him in this text conversation back and forth, I was like, okay, I'll commit to an hour a day. He said, great. Then he said to me, you need to text me by five o'clock East Coast time every day to tell me you've completed your hour rehearsal. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm used to being the person who asks others to be accountable to me. I have an accountability partner in place. What do you mean you want me to text you every day? Like, oh my God. No. And then I was like, nope, I believe in public accountability drives private accountability. So for the last few weeks, and at the time of this recording, hope, you know, when this goes out into the world, hopefully it will be months and months of doing it. But I have been getting up between four and at the latest, maybe five to get in at least an hour's rehearsal. Now, when I'm rehearsing, there's several things I'm doing. I learned a brilliant rehearsal process through uh, Michael and Amy Port. They run a program called Heroic Public Speaking. And and Amy teaches this seven-step rehearsal process, which is phenomenal. You can look that up online. But what my rehearsal involves is me literally standing in my office in the dark sometimes, like a lunatic, speaking out loud. Sometimes it means just working on a particular story. I have a speech that I'm doing this week at the time of recording. And uh, there's a great sponsor who's bought a copy of my book for everyone. So I I discovered a story. I interviewed them. I'm going to insert this story about them into my keynote to thank them for being a sponsor, but also because they, you know, they generously gave everyone a copy of my book. And so that requires time on my feet. And so this time on my feet, like, you know, I'm sure the baseball players that you talked about are constantly out there batting. In my world, I'm on my feet. When I learned to run, I hired a running coach. I'd never run in my life, by the way, Brian. I didn't run in school, didn't play team sports, never even run on a treadmill. I am not that girl. I'm not built for that. My body is not a runner's body. But I hired a coach to teach me how to run. And he said, and I was like, I was getting so frustrated. My times weren't changing. My legs were tired. I wasn't breathing properly. And I was like, how do I get faster? How do I get better? And he said, it's time on your feet. And so I I learned to run. I started running and I ran a marathon in less than five months. A wow. full marathon. Because I had a coach, right? But he said to me, you can't shortcut time on your feet. So he would make me go out for 15, 20-mile runs before my marathon. Now understand, never run. Not a girl who ever ran, right? So I went from running for less than a minute to running, like it took me all day to do my marathon, let's be clear. But, well, not all day. But you know what I'm saying? Time on your feet for me is 4 a.m. 
you know, maybe five if I'm like having a little sleep in. But the only way I can get it in on top of what I do already, Brian, because of my travel schedule is it has to be first thing in the morning for me. Uh, so you're hitting on something that I'm obsessed with, which is your mindset for preparation and your mindset for performance. And what I think is actually there's another mindset, which is your mindset for practice or re- dress mm-hmm. rehearsal. So mm-hmm. for me, mindset for preparation should actually be very critical, humble. Like, what can I do better? How can I improve what you do, right? Reach out to people, get feedback, learn, have an accountability partner. Like there is a mindset for preparation that is very much about growth and development. The mindset for performance to me is about executing. Like, all right, so you, you, you stumble over a story. You don't have time when you're on stage to criticize yourself or to break it down. You just have to keep going forward. The baseball player we're talking about, they swing and they miss. They have to step back in that box and hit the next ball. Um, but that is a different mindset than what I'm trying to do when I'm preparing, which is perfect it, get it right, make sure it's right there. And then in between those two, which often gets lost, is practice, which is what you're talking about. And, you know, some people call it deliberate practice, but really practicing for performance uh, and putting my mind and my body in that space so that when I'm performing, I've already been there before. And so I think it's brilliant what you're doing. And I think it sounds like you've always been really good at that preparation, really good at that performance. And now you're adding in this wrinkle of, hey, I want to get even better. And to get better, I need to practice this performance, which is so cool. One of the questions I had for you as you were talking is, it's come easy to you. Speaking is something you've had the gift of gab. You've been doing it forever. But you know a lot of people are terrified of public speaking. There's, you know, when they do research, there's more people that are afraid to speak in public than death. So speaking- Can we talk about that for a second though? Yeah. I mean, really? I mean, yeah. really? This, I don't know who came up with that and it gets quoted time and time again. And yeah. so I just want to push back on that because seriously, if you are given a choice, someone's got a gun to your head. That's a really bad analogy, but- <laughs> No, it is a right You're going to die right or you have to speak. Right. Chances are someone's going to just like, even if they suck, they're going to speak. So I don't believe in any, I do not believe that it is worse than death. Now in saying that though, I am trying to always get better at it, but I think the more it's the time on your feet thing. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So if you hate speaking, hate speaking, hate speaking, then start to challenge yourself to find opportunities to speak. It could be speaking up in a team meeting. That might be your first brave thing you do. It might be speaking up in a teleconference. It might be offering to introduce someone at a company retreat. It might be a going to a networking event and pushing yourself outside of what you're comfortable in and just walking into a new group of people and telling people who you are. It might be um, uh, it might be offering to do the company update. It might be offering to, uh, you know, I don't know. There's so many things we could do that don't have to be like building a speech. It could be just getting used to hearing yourself speak stand up when you speak as opposed to sit down we get so comfortable at a meeting table right where we're just chatting with our friends i don't actually think of these things as presentations i think of them as conversations and that's what removes the nerves for me brian i also have systems built into my life that i always meet an audience before i stand on stage i will be at the front of the room i will be walking around the tables i meet the av crew i make sure the meeting plan is happy I'm meeting everyone, I'm learning their names, I'm running around the audience. Until they call me up onto the stage to be introduced, you better believe I'm meeting as many people as I can. And here's the trick for that. 
It's because they're not strangers anymore. They're friends. I just met them. We're just going to have a chat. And so every time I just have a chat with an audience, I'm much more authentic. I have so much more fun. It's so much more valuable. So don't think of things as a presentation. Think of it as a conversation. And then you can't be nervous. The other cool thing that you just explained was you've created systems for your weaknesses to make sure the attention to detail is taken care of. So Mm -hmm. you can apply that same sort of logic and say, all right, well, what systems are you putting in place knowing that this is a part of what you have to do to go toward it rather than run away from it? And it's still systems. It's just figuring out what are the systems that you can put in place to help you execute whatever needs to be executed. And these sound anal, and I totally get that. Like checklists are a pain. I don't enjoy them, but that's necessary, right? Um, And so while it sounds very anal, some of the things that I'm saying, and that's, I don't even like that word, but it sounds like, you know, this is hard work. It's really not. But I think one thing in order for me to accomplish as much as I need to in the 24 hours that I'm gifted with on this planet, I have to make sure that there are certain things I'm held accountable for. There are certain results that I'm focused on. Do not get me wrong. There are days, Brian, where I would much rather curl up with a movie and eat popcorn and not call back clients and not prepare for speeches. Believe me, I have those days. Cat videos on YouTube. Hello. That's a fabulous, wonderful waste of my attention. And... I've also had to build systems in place to avoid that. I use an app called Freedom on my computer. It's You can use it on your phone as well. It It's a site blocking app. So basically today I have it on for like five hours because I have so much I need to get done. It doesn't let me go onto any social media site. So just because I might, I don't have the willpower other people have like, oh, I'm not going to go on social media today. Uh, so I've built systems in my life. I use tools like the Freedom app to make sure that I'm paying attention to the most important things, right? I worked out just before our call today because the only 20-minute window I had was like that 20 minutes. And thankfully, you now unfortunately have to see the results of that in our video chat. But do you see what I mean? Like I'm, I had to make an appointment with myself to do the 20-minute workout because it was the only gap I had in my calendar today. For sure. One of the areas that I had written down to talk to you about from the book is this idea of work-life integration versus balance. And (laughs) um, I actually think, you know, 15 years ago, people were, you know, work-life balance, all the rage, all the rage. Now, at least in my world, and maybe it's my filter of what I see, I I find that a lot of people are talking about work-life integration rather than just balance. Uh, so literally this morning I was on Twitter and a guy was saying, you know, forget balance. It's, you're not going to achieve it. You know, mm-hmm. you should love what you're doing with your work. The, the, where, where I'm going to just challenge that concept is to give a different perspective to integration, which is um, I've got two young kids at home. Uh, I've got this thing that's in my pocket now that is with me at all times, right? A, a phone that I can, I can, I can be integrated with my work at all times. And I think as our society continues to grow technologically, um, that's going to become an even bigger issue. It's already a massive issue. And you, you hit on the screen time in the book. And I think you had a stat in the book that most children and teens spend 75% of their waking lives fixed to a screen, which was a mind-boggling stat that I read in your book. Um, and so my concern with the idea of this integration concept is that we aren't shutting it off. And um, look, I get why balance for a lot of people is not a realistic concept and is a tricky concept. And I love this phrase, like be where your feet are. So when you're with your family, be with your family, when you're at work, be at work. But I must say the one concern I have, and I see it 
with family, with clients, with friends, is that this phone makes us fully integrated 24 hours a day. And so I'm a little concerned as I continue to see integration pop up more and more that people aren't doing, honestly, what the Aussies are so good at. And like, <laughs> like, like you mentioned this, like anyone that spent time with Aussies, like Aussies are, and I'm going to generalize an entire country, but, um, you know, they travel the world because they're on this island and they feel mm -hmm. the need to go travel. And right. they, you know, a lot of them surf, a lot of them live mm -hmm. Uh, there is a vibrancy to Aussies. And right. the Americans, we, to your point earlier, I like literally, I, I was just with 10 people from the Middle East over the weekend. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm just noticing technology and how it is becoming so hard to balance that and that it becomes so integrated. So I'd love to riff with you on integration sure. and balance. Okay. Uh, get your thoughts on it. So let's be clear. Technology is not the enemy of our attention. We are. We control our device use. Now, some tips that I put in place for that is I actually have a cover on my cell phone. People can't see that. But the reason I have a cover is I don't see any notifications or anything like that. I think we have to choose the systems we put in place for our technology. Now, one of my clients in Philadelphia is a radio company. They have a basket outside the office when, of their meeting room. Everyone drops their cell phone in the basket before they go into the meeting room, and then they have a device-free meeting. Uh, I have some clients where we make sure that they put their cell phone in their bag or in their glove compartment of their car so they're not texting and driving. One of the things you saw in my book, Brian, is that nine people die every day because of distracted driving. I mean, I don't know what we have to do to tell people that their device will kill them if they don't pay attention. Like, it is literally that simple. And even in knowing that, people still feel it's more important to update their status on Facebook than pay attention to the road. So even if you don't believe me, right, go Google campaigns where people have lost loved ones because of this. Now, the other thing that is happening is we are teaching and role modeling for little people. You mentioned you have little people in your life, right? So if you are fortunate to have a role in this, on this planet that involves the responsibility of other little people, maybe they're teenage people, you have a responsibility to role model attention, which means whatever you're doing, they're seeing. So if you're constantly connected, if you're making your device more important than them, we've made technology more important than people, that is not by any ways integration. You're role modeling poor behaviors. And then parents get annoyed because their kids want the tablet. Well, the tablet's often a babysitter. The tablet is often like they take it away as punishment. We've integrated this into our lifestyle. Now, so I'm not anti-technology. The thing I love about my cell phone, Brian, I can connect with every family member in Australia. I can text friends all over the world. I can shoot videos from this thing. I can scroll through photos when I'm traveling of the people that I love. This is not the issue. The device is not the issue. The user is the issue. We are Technology is not the enemy of our attention, as I said, we are. So to get more of this integration, we've got to understand we are fully at choice. We are at choice about the environment that we're creating, the emotions that we bring, and the expectations. So in the book, we have this triangle. So if you imagine a triangle, that we really have to think about the environment that we're creating. Is your environment conducive to being able to integrate? If you want to have yourself connected all the time, that's the environment you're creating. But maybe you set up some uh, an environment where, say, for example, my honey and I, we have a rule in our house that says all conversations finish in the garage, meaning if I'm on a teleconference with a client, I sit in my car and I finish that. 
so that when I walk through the house, I can say hello to him when I get home, right? So, so Nina, walk me through how you, the distinction around balance and that, that being integration instead of balance. So think of balance as that old-fashioned like set of scales and with my hands, I'm going up and down, right? So we have this illusion that work and life need to balance, but that's stupid because at no point can anyone give you the formula of what your work life is going to be. Nobody has the right to give you their expectations. No one has the right to tell you how to lead your life. No, I certainly don't. And I think what happens is people think, well, I have to work as much as I play. That's stupid. What if you're new in your career? You are working your butt off to learn as much as you can. You're trying to climb climb whatever ladder you're looking towards. If you're an athlete, you're trying to get that incredible level of performance and you're new, you're proving to the team that you're a valuable contributor. You're going to do whatever it takes to learn and be great at what you do. You might be a veteran. You might be on the other end of your sporting career. You might be on the other end as a CEO. You might be on the other end of your career as an entrepreneur. You know what you need to do to get things done. You might be a little bit more relaxed. Nobody can tell you what balance is. I don't believe work and play need to be exactly the same. I am in a place in my life where I have designed my calendar. My friend Clay Bear, a brilliant brain, He has this program called The Perfect Calendar where he helps you design what life is really going to look like. I have got to a place where I know there are months in my calendar I literally take off. But in those months, I am creating, I'm building, and there are months in my calendar where I am on the road like a lunatic. And I know that. And it looks to the outside world that I have no balance, but I know when my rest is, I know when my recovery is, and I know when I work really hard. So to me, work-life balance is a myth. It's a crazy thought. It's elusive. It's stupid even pursuing it. Work-life integration is finding out what environment do you want to create, what emotional state do you want, and what are the expectations that you have of yourself and others have of you. And when you unpack those three things, only you come up with what integration means to you. Love it. So it's so much clearer for me. And I think what comes out for me is this idea of consciousness and intention. And this podcast is called Intentional Performers. And so it's an intentional act that you're going to sit in the garage before you enter uh, with your call. It's an intentional act for that company to say, hey, our phones are not going to be more important than the people in this room. You know, those are conscious, intentional decisions uh, that change our relationship with the technology that we have. So, so I love that. Um, and you know that the book, because you read Attention Pays, thank you for doing that. The whole premise of the book is it's about in intentional attention. It's how you pay attention personally, professionally, and globally. Personally, it's truly about who deserves your attention. It's about being thoughtful. Professionally is about what deserves your attention. It's about being productive. And globally, it's about how are you going to pay attention in the world and being a contributor, being responsible for this planet that we have. So I am all for intentional attention. So it's a good place for us to start winding down. The the last question I have for you is, it was so clear in your book, like what your mission is, uh, what your philosophy is. Um, So I would love for you to share sort of the intention that you have around mission and philosophy. And you were even talking about it just now. It was coming out of you uh, in in, in an intentional way. Uh, And then also, so it's a two-part question. I don't always like to stack questions, but I'll stack these last two, which is, you know, what's your mission? What's your philosophy? And then how did that come to be? And and how did you get so clear on, on your philosophy and your mission? I think clarity comes as part of an evolution. 
the more you do something, the more you get clear about it. As a keynote speaker, the more I tell stories, the more I play with audiences, the more I learn what they want to know, right? So this is the practice piece you talked about before. So for me, it's always going to be evolving. I never give the exact same keynote. I don't have the capacity or the skill set to do that because it's always about creating an experience for that group of people at that moment in time and my standing in service of them for that very moment. I'm not the girl who can do the exact same words. I, I don't have a canned speech. It's just not the way I'm wired. And so for me, my mission is truly to get the world to pay attention. And by that, I mean, when we pay attention to the people who are important to us, we have deeper relationships, companies make more money, we attract and retain the top talent that we want to work with, we enjoy things so much more, and we truly have an opportunity to make a difference on the planet. And I believe it all starts with how we choose to invest intentional attention. I love it. And I'm going to give the, your philosophy that you wrote in the book, which was, I want people to feel better because they interacted with me. Mm-hmm. That was such a unique and different philosophy. So this will be the last question, which is, why is it that you care so much about uh, wanting people to feel better because they interacted with you, which I certainly do um, after having this conversation. But, but I'm just curious, like, wh- why is that your, your philosophy? Why is that something that is paramount for you because I always believe that I should be leaving like these little dew drops of happiness on people whether it's the person who gives me my coffee at the local store whether it's the security guard who lets me into the car space whether it is the executive assistant who allows me to have an appointment with hers or his boss whether it is a team member who works with me whether it's my honey that I have shared my life with I want every person I meet to have a better day, a better experience, have that little moment of happiness because we had the opportunity to have that interaction, to have that transaction. This this is so important to me that I believe in systemizing thoughtfulness. I believe in always using people's name. I believe in making them feel like they are the most important person I've ever dealt with in that moment in time. And so for me, I believe that when you do that, it has this ripple effect. Because imagine if you're super kind to your barista, they are then kind to the next customer. They're kind to the person they share their life with. They're kind to their cat when they go to see their puppy or their cat when they go home. I believe it has this, it's kind of like dropping a little, it's like a pebble in a pond, right? If you drop a pebble in a pond, it has this ripple effect. That one smile, that one comment, that one compliment, that one thank you note you write, that one phone call you make, that one text that you send, they have this ripple effect. And that is how we create a much more happier planet where we all get to play. That's why I'm so driven by this. I love it. And Neen, when when I think we spoke on the phone the first time, or I think we actually did it over uh, Skype or some video technology. Uh, and this time as well, she starts by saying, hello, gorgeous. And I don't, I don't say it. I don't say it with Neen's. I, that was my attempt to be like Neen. But, <laughs> Good luck with that. Honey, I think you may need to go up a few pictures. But I yeah. am known for saying g'day gorgeous everywhere because, and I think that you can make people laugh or smile just in the very moment that you interact with them. Well, I'll tell you that that's not something that I hear from my wife. I don't hear it from uh, the people I interact with. So it is unique. And uh, it did. It, 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 so I need to record that from you. And every morning, just wake up to that. Good day, gorgeous. So uh, maybe that's something you can create an app for. Is. My friends joke about making one of those, you know, those little dolls where you pull the cord and it says all these things. They want to create like a neen doll. And that's one of the phrases they want me to record, which I think is hilarious. 
I, I'm I'm down to back it, be an early investor, and, uh, <laughs> and let's make it happen. Uh, so, Nina, I just want to thank you for your spirit, your energy, your soul, your knowledge, your wisdom, uh, all that good stuff. And for those that are interested in learning more about how they can hire you as a keynote or follow you on social media or buy your books, uh, please feel please give us uh, where people can find and learn more about you. Brian, I'm so fortunate. There's only one Neen James online, N-E-E-N-J-A-M-E-S.com. You can follow me on social. You can go to my website. And there's hundreds of articles you can download for free and share with people you care about. Neen, this was, this was a lot of fun, and I appreciate you. It is a gloomy, rainy day in Washington, D.C., and that is the environment, and you made it uh, a little more uh, bright today. So thank you for the time. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers, and then our website's intentionalperformers.com. Uh, Neen, appreciate everything you're doing for the world and hope our paths uh, cross in person sometime soon as well. Thank you. It was a privilege, and thank you for everything you do in the world to make it a better place. Thanks, Dean. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I also have built accountability into my life, Brian, so I have an accountability partner. Every Monday, I send in my goals for the week. Every Friday, I send out a result of how I did. Now, I don't particularly enjoy it some weeks, but I'm going to tell you, there is no way I'm going to report on not having those things done, even if I'm up late Thursday night trying to get them done before Friday's email. And so I believe that public accountability drives private accountability. If you want to get good at something or if you want to learn something, tell someone that you're going to do it and then it makes you more accountable for it. Athletes know this, CEOs know it because they're accountable to their board, leaders know it because they have objectives. But sometimes if we are an entrepreneur or we don't have a people to be accountable to, we don't always get as much done that we want to do. So that's a system of attention I build into my life is accountability partners.